The Physician's Road. Create your life in medicine, on your own terms. Today, we are on the path to wealth. Today, on the Physician's Road podcast, we're on the path to wealth, and we will be talking about the self-storage industry, what it is, who is the typical self-storage client, and what are the metrics used to determine a profitable investment. Please go to thephysiciansroad.com forward slash self-storage to download our self-storage investment guide. Again, thephysiciansroad.com forward slash self-storage and download our self-storage investment guide. The Physician's Road is brought to you by Vernonville Asset Management. Vernonville Asset Management was created to help physicians build wealth and create income beyond Wall Street. Through our exclusive private investments, doctors can begin to free themselves from the burdensome regulations in healthcare by creating income streams independent of medicine. Go to IncomeBeyondWallStreet.com to get your free report, Wall Street's Biggest Lie. Again, go to IncomeBeyondWallStreet.com to get Wall Street's Biggest Lie and free yourself today. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Eric Tate on the Physicians Road podcast. Today, we're on the path to wealth. And I'm so happy to have Darren Kelly from Right Move Storage to talk to us about the self-storage industry and what's going on. So we're going to have a long conversation about kind of what it is, the current state of the industry, how it performed during COVID, and what the new advances that are going on in the industry that are happening that you may not even realize um, is is going on, um, like mall conversions. And so, Darren, kind of tell our audience kind of about yourself, give us your background, and kind of how you came to this industry. Thank you, Eric. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you today. Um, Yeah, I I started in the hospitality industry years ago uh, in the 80s and worked it through the 90s. in hotels, restaurants, uh, coffee house business, uh, all that kind of stuff. And uh, it was a natural fit when I moved to self-storage because, you know, the service, the operations side, uh, and, and most of those uh, hotels and restaurants have the real estate component. So it was really a natural move for me. Um, so in 2001, I got with public storage and I stayed there close to 10 years and learned, you know, a lot about uh, the institutional side and and um, some of the tricks of the trade they have, they had developed through all the number of years they were in business since the 70s and one of the biggest out there. And uh, decided after that time, it was time for me to kind of strike out on my own and went and worked for uh, a company uh, and built a portfolio up. And then uh, when we uh, moved that portfolio, uh, I, I followed a couple of my buddies uh, from there and we started writing new storage in 2013. Um, and so that, that's how I got to where we are in this industry. Got it. And I just want to clarify for people, when you say public storage, what does that mean? Because people who don't know the industry don't know who that is. So can you give a little background on who they are? Public storage is the largest publicly traded REIT self-storage in, in the country. So they're, they're, they're the largest uh, owned properties. I think they're north of 3,000 now and plus third party management has grown too. So they're very, very large and they're pretty much the leader on the, that side. Got it. So you cut your teeth with the largest company in the industry. Correct. Yes, I did. And so talk about right move storage, kind of the genesis of it, kind of what you do there for them, and then kind of um, the assets that you manage and kind of where they are located. Sure, sure. I'm, I'm the president and also a principal of right move storage. Uh, I, we founded this in 2013 with uh, my partners, Bill McGrath and Peter Wall of Lampark Advisors. And so uh, we're, we work together uh, on all sides of this thing from acquisition 
uh, development, um, analysis, um, due diligence, all the different sites that we do uh, in management, of course. And so uh, we have now have properties from coast to coast, believe it or not, out of Houston, Texas is where we're based. But we have properties in California, Texas, Louisiana, Florida, Massachusetts, Kansas, and now we're, we're heading into New York. So we are all over the place. <laughs> Got it. And, and for those who are listening, the names Bill McGrath and Lampark may sound familiar. Those of you who are invested with us in some of our uh, industrial projects, that is the company that manages the, some of our industrial portfolio. So um, as you can see, investing is a team sport and this industry is a team sport. Um, while the industry is large, it's it's close knit and people know each other um, across multiple areas across the country. So hopefully over these series of podcasts that you've listened to us, you will realize as we bring on experts, you'll notice that you'll, you'll hear common names, you'll hear common themes back and forth. And that's what we really want to impart to you is that investing is very much a team sport and knowing the right people um, will take you very far in terms of the types of assets you may or may not want to own um, in your own portfolio. And so let's talk about kind of self-storage. Who's a typical person who uses, let's stay on the, let's go on the retail side. Who's a typical yeah. person who is using, uh, who, who uses a, a storage unit? That's great. You know, we, we like to talk about all the D's and self-storage, you know, divorce, uh, displacement, um, you know, uh, disaster, all those kind of things. But, you know, it really comes from, you know, most of the decisions in storage we know from research are made by uh, females. So we know a lot of females uh, make the decisions in storage and whether or not they, you know, who they're going to use. Um, but, you know, our clients are anywhere from millennials who uh, uh, are very, very nimble and they're looking for small footprints. And, they, and so this is a, a, a very uh, economic decision for them um, down to the mother who needs to store her uh, Christmas supplies and things or the, the husband who needs to put his uh, car toy somewhere. So it really varies. Uh, it, it's really, um, and what's interesting, Eric, to your point on it, on who, who they are, it's evolving. It, it's like as society changes, and we'll talk later about things like the pandemic and things, but I mean, you know, bottom line is it's, it's evolving. So, you know, that's really important to, to notice um, and to, uh, to react to. And so let's let's dive down a little bit on that, um, because I think people think of self-storage as kind of the units, the box they're putting in their old furniture, their old toys, things of that nature. But really, what do you all store on some of your properties? Walk through kind of because people yeah. may not realize the, 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 the breadth of the types of things that people store, especially as baby boomers are getting older and are and are indulging in some hobbies. Talk about kind of what self-storage encompasses um, outside of what my, most people may think about just kind of boxes. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, it's we're outside the box now, to be honest with you, if you want to use a uh, cliche term. But, you know, you know, the household goods and the personal items uh, side of the business was traditionally where it kind of started. You know, you can move your garage. You need to make room in your garage. You got something, to, you know, your closets, your attics, that kind of stuff. But it's, it's really evolved. Like, for instance, you know, the RV and boat component. As people live in, in, in more higher end subdivisions and things like that, they're not allowed to have. Uh, by deed restriction, have those items at their house. So they have to have a place to put them. So that's a built-in, you know, I'm there for storage. It's going to be there no matter what. Um, things like wine, people that, that specialize in wine and they love their wine. Well, they can't store at their house all the time and keep the temperature control. So we have wine storage. Um, a lot of uh, pharmaceutical reps, think of that, you know, they have these samples that they have and they need a place to put them. Uh, so, uh, you know, the business side is, is also there. 
So it's really, um, it's continuing to evolve. And we're seeing things now like man caves, if you want to call them that, not to be sex or anything like that. But, you know, these, these big, big, huge units that people have RVs, 60-foot, 50-foot RVs in. They put their four-wheelers in, their three-wheelers in, that kind of stuff. And, and they work on them or motorcycles. Motorcycles are a big deal. So it's really as society is evolving, we're, we're, have, we're mutating our product to really provide all the services they need to store those things that they don't have room in their home. Perfect. Um, and cause I, because I was actually shocked um, by it as well in terms of, um, especially during the pandemic, the, the big boom in RVs, you mm. realize that they have to be stored somewhere. And yeah. that a, a lot of these storage facilities, you don't realize that they have these fenced off areas and you'll see RVs parked there. Well, that's a rental space that is being paid for on a monthly basis consistently. Um, so just kind of opening people's minds so that they, when they're driving down the road and they see these units now, they can look at them a, very, a little bit differently in terms of the activity that may be happening in and out of them um, from that standpoint. So let's talk a little bit about kind of the popular um, notions right now in the press about self-storage. So some people are hearing that self-storage is in a bit of a bubble, um, that you know too many have been developed and, and, and the return profile in them these days isn't where it used to be kind of what is the state of the industry right now in terms of that? Well, that's, that's a really great question. And it's, it's interesting because, you know, in the other asset classes, when you look at housing and you look at, you know, uh, office and, and multifamily and things, I mean, um, it, it, you're locked into longer term rents and things like that. Um, but our demand is, is, is increasing and evolving. I mean, we're finding that um, there's always a, a, a percentage of the population that's going to store based on their lifestyle. And so I like to say storage is no longer just a box. I mean, it's really a lifestyle. It's part of your, your day-to-day world. Um, and so as that's evolving, um, you know, I think overbuilding, you hear that term a lot, uh, it's really relative. Um, for instance, if you have, you know, a lot of migration, a lot of a lot of moving into it to a, like Houston right now. I mean, we're north of three percent probably uh, across the whole city uh, in migration. Well, of that three percent population increase, there's a certain percentage of that that's going to store. Well, we've got to make sure that we're you know like places like Nashville where where you know your your migration could be 12 percent in certain areas. Well, who's where are those people going to store? If its supply isn't there, so the word overbuild and like in Houston, for instance, we we use a, a statistic, well, in store we use a statistic that says how many uh, square foot are being developed or planned versus supply current supply, right? Well, in Houston, we're probably two percent now, so we have been 12 percent at different times. Well, you look at Nashville and you'll see maybe fourteen to sixty percent of supply, or maybe even twenty percent. Uh, or some other markets, LA, uh, Las Vegas right now, they're all, they're, they're percentage of supply, um, I mean, of, of, uh, of development versus supply is very large, but so is their migration, right? So people are, oh, it's overbuilt. Well, from right now it is, but when that, when that time comes and those people are settled in and, they're, and they've moved in and now they have to put their stuff where it needs to be a place to put it. So um, we, that, that's why I guess I always say overbuilt or, you know, overdone, is relative to where your market is. And that's why it's super important that you are analyzing, you have a team or group of people that you work with that are really understand that nuance and they dig in and you don't make a bad buy into a market that may, might be um, that, you know, a little bit oversupplied uh, in the time frame that you need to achieve your investment goals. 
Got it. And so we're going to circle back to those metrics you just said. Um, but let's talk about COVID and performance mm-hmm. during COVID. Then we're going to circle back to getting the the audience to think in their own mind if they were going to own a unit, kind of walk them through a, 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 a diligence model in your head. But let's just start with COVID. And so you've got a relatively large portfolio that you all managed. So wh- where do you all rank in terms of management in the, in the country, in terms of units managed? Uh, we're right now, um, probably we were ranked 18th uh, last year in the country in terms of the size of our company relative to the market, to the, the industry. Um, we're expecting to move probably into the 15 or lower uh, area after our, all of our work this year. Um, we're, we're just growing and, 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 and keeping up with the, 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 uh, the need for our services. Got it. Um, but you know, uh, in terms of COVID, uh, you know, it was, uh, you know, when you go back to February, March of last year, when really it began to hit us, right? You know, um, and everyone was was reacting and overreacting, or or even underreacting in some cases. We 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 really took a real patient approach, and we immediately put procedures in to to make sure there was safety, make sure we were following the guidelines and things of that nature with inside of our properties, so that customers and our people were safe. We did all that, and I think that was that was a, a strong reaction. Um, we, we didn't get, uh, I think we probably have across our whole portfolio, maybe one of our, or two of our employees over time, even in their outside lives, uh, experienced to COVID, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, getting the disease, but we were able, really able to keep our customers and our, our, our employees safe. And the way we did that was really move toward more contactless rentals and contactless experience, um, which honestly, what's interesting about that. And I'm seeing it in, in food services and everything where I'm not sure we're going back from that, Eric. I'm not sure that customers are going to, you know, they're kind of, I don't know, it's, it's evolving. And so um, we are still seeing a, a lot of contactless rental um, and, and people enjoying that experience. And they don't have to get involved with a manager or whatever they don't want to. And so I think it was always inherent and maybe more than like, I be cliche, but the millennial age, they like the freedom to do their own thing, but we're seeing it in, in, in especially um, in, in older people who are storing uh, the technology. They're getting more savvy with it, their cell phones and stuff, and they're like, "This is great. We don't have to. We don't have to risk risk anything. We can get it, this thing rented." And so that's been really important to react to that in this time. Got it. And then in terms of financial performance during COVID, how did what did you see in terms of kind of revenue? Any revenue right. dips uh, in terms of leasing velocity, those kinds of things? That's a, that's a good point. Um, what we did initially see was everything shut down, like people just moving around. That was pretty much through the first part of summer um, into July, maybe June, July. So our velocity uh, d- dropped pretty, pretty, very, very, a lot, <laughs> substantially. But what it also happened was the REITs, went to a, even public storage on TV with a 30% drop in coming rates. So that drove the industry because, you know, they're, they're pushing that there. So with 30% drop in rates, it made it very difficult to first off increase for in-place, in-place rents, right? Because the rates coming in maybe might be lower than what, what the person has in place. And so there was a, a time in there, probably up until almost um, October of this year, where it was very, very dicey to to do rate increases if the rates were lower or so low. We, we weren't getting the, the move up in the in-place rents. And, but now and what's interesting is, you know, we've probably gotten back 20% of 
Uh, and so now we're probably across the board, 10%, you know, less in some cases in terms of our incoming rents from where we were. And in many, many markets, we're, we're back to pre-pandemic um, incoming rents. But we are still trailing financially to move those in the in-place rents, not the incoming rents. And I, maybe I'm, I, I might need to explain that a little bit. No, no, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going I'm to tease it out because you're thinking, and I like it because I appreciate the way you think. You th- you're thinking about your pro forma budget as to rent growth that you were giving your owners. Yes. I'm asking a different question. Okay. I'm asking a risk question. The question oh. I'm asking is how much churn, how much did you lose, not yes. against pro forma, but just against baseline? Like, okay, this was our baseline rent this month. When COVID hit, how much of it fell? Just so people can think about it from a risk perspective. Right. Like my money was in a deal. Granted, right. it had been growing during COVID, but did right. I lose some? Did I like, like, was there a dip or did you keep, or things basically, you couldn't add new people. You couldn't, but what was there was there. Like walk yeah. me through the churn side of it. Yeah, it was very interesting. Nobody moved out. That was the that was what was interesting. When there was nobody moving in, there was nobody moving out. And honestly, because our pricing model and our you know our month to month deal, people uh, we didn't we didn't have major uh, collection issues. We we maintained our collection level through the pandemic. Uh, the deep part of it with no issues, and so there was no financial. Uh, you know, um, downturn from where we were when we went in. We 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 kept everything. Everything it just did. It stayed the same. It just didn't grow to the rate we wanted it to. Got it. Which was which was honestly um, very surprising. I was very worried going in. And we we be honest, we took the PPP money for our owners and were able to get every single property we managed was able to get PPP money. Well, we 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 have already paid. Well, the part we had to pay back, but the part we didn't, the 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 owners just got a great little check from the government that helped their uh, their financials. So we honestly, in self storage in our portfolio, it was really a non-event except for rent growth. Yeah, and then that's coming back now. Yeah, and that and that's the thing, right? So I want to be I want to make sure that people are listening are clear on that, right? Because yeah. in the end, I always teach people downside first, right? And so if you're downside yeah. in probably the worst pandemic, worst kind of financial hit that the country has seen in, you know, a hundred years was the money you're making, you're still going to make. Yes. Correct. It didn't go down. And now it starts to grow again. That is a pretty good indicator that the industry is a recession resistant type of industry. And so we always start with the worst case scenario first, and then, yeah. hey, how do we get back to growth potentially if growth is kind of the, of the model? And so you answered that question in the way that I was I was looking for to understand kind of worst case scenario, what happened? Well, you're telling me it was status quo. Rent still came in, and then you just had to put a pause on being able to push rents, which is very yeah. different than hotels, which is very different than some commercial properties, which mm-hmm. is very different than potentially some um, multifamily or, or, or residential properties. Um, well, so that's really what I wanted to kind of put into context for people in terms of an investment standpoint is to understand what happened in your industry as it relates to just regular revenue during the pandemic. Yeah. I think one other thing that's very interesting about that is that, you know, um, in the other asset classes, um, you know, and we managed those on, on, on my partner's side, um, there was great difficulty in, in people stop paying their rents. Um, and in some of the cases in office and things like that, and even retail, and it, but in self-storage, 
we did not experience that, which was what I was most worried about really was did we stop collecting money? And we didn't. And actually we, it, that was, that was just really the bright part of our asset class. And so from a, you know, from the standpoint, our, our investors are still all bullish nonstop looking for new properties. So yep. it's, Got it. didn't really. Yeah. We saw the, we saw the same thing in uh, our flex industrial uh, portfolio, yeah. as you know, cause you all manage we saw the same exact thing and actually our infill commercial projects um, cause they cater to kind of a working class. They were, mm-hmm. they were able to maintain as well. Cause we had a lot of service providers in there. So, yes. Um, so that, that was actually very interesting. And so now let's move back to your metrics about um, a market. So if I'm an investor, how are you guys determining if a market is good to either add new self storage from a build perspective or buy existing? So the first metric you gave us was new units being created versus population in influx. What other things are you looking at? Uh, that's that's really a, a large question, and I'll, I'm going to try to be concise. Yeah, you but, can just bring it, and literally you can just bullet point it, right? Because in the yeah, end, people do their own. People do their own research. If you just bullet point the things they need to look at, they can go and do their own yeah. research. You don't have to write a soliloquy on it. Sure. Bottom line is, you know, square foot per capita probably is the. The, the one we look at the most, and that is, you know, how many square feet of storage are there as a percent, you know, as a, a factor of the population. And so it really varies, you know, as storage is evolving in products, this product type evolves, it's changing what the targets on those are. And also when you look at the different markets we serve, it, it, it the targets are different based on density and based on uh, income and based on a lot of things, but square foot per capita is really important. So I'll just tell you, you know, normally if you're in a, in a suburban market, which a lot of storage is, you know, if you're in a, you know, nine square foot per capita, you're in a great spot. Meaning if the market currently has nine square foot per person, you're in a really good spot if you're already in there and you could also still come in there and build because you'd analyze the demand, look at the population growth and just simply use that square foot per capita and go, okay, if I, you know, where's it going to go, how much is in demand? And then you only would build or expand uh, a property to meet that demand. That's how we're keeping this thing from being overdone. Uh, And the market's doing a good job with it in most cases, to be honest with you. That's what I love about this. It's so free market. Um, But, you know, population density is important. Um, The market type, are you a suburban? Are you an urban? Urban, um, we've seen square foot per capita is in the 16s and 17s, but because of the, you know, of the type of density yeah. and land, like land, land use, yeah, land use restrictions. Yes. Land use restrictions. It becomes very valuable. And, it, and it's, so it's a different situation. Um, also, you know, primary markets, meaning like, you know, Houston is a primary market. When you look at a secondary market, say like a Baton Rouge or something like that, or, you know, these, the small mid, mid-sized uh, cities, um, and then, you know, that's secondary markets and tertiary markets. When you go to like, you know, a place in East Texas somewhere or whatever, just because it's out in East Texas doesn't mean that 300 units are not very viable and extremely profitable for an owner. Uh, so we look, you, know, you have to look at all those kind of things. And of course, cap rates are super important. You don't want to buy on, on too low of a cap rate. And then your exit is, is diminished because of that. Um, Things like I, I, I call it migration. You hear a lot of different terms for it. But the population and a positive migration, two and three percent, are really good for markets. It really gives that you have room to do things like expansion. 
um, existing product inventory, like what type of products in the market? Is it RV? Is it, you know, you can't just say all storage and then it'd be different product types or really understand how much climate control and non-climate control. So those are all important factors. Um, and the drive times and barriers, like how, you know, if it takes me 20 minutes to cross a freeway, that's a barrier. I'm not going to store across that freeway. I'm storing on my, on my side of the freeway. Um, those are big deals. And um, um, more quick ones, visibility from thoroughfares. Are you seen from by a lot of people? Are your traffic counts strong? And in the median household income, I generally am careful to not go much under 50,000 household median income. If I get down in the 40s, it can be risky below that, you know, unless you're buying really, really well and it's already there and it's 98% occupied and has been for two or three years, still might be a good investment. So I, I don't throw those out the window. Um, so you're, to your first, it's kind of a double, double question. Then you have the adding supply versus buying, right? Do we develop or do we, do we just buy in, you know, to what's already there? And I really think that, um, and one of the things about uh, that you have to look at is if, if there, I don't like to develop where there's already a huge square foot per capita. I, I you know, lease up is already hard enough. I mean, we're forecasting now, you know, anywhere from um, uh, 42 to 48 months lease up on, on most of our larger properties because it's just simply taking longer. It used to be, you know, 30, everybody said, you know, 36 months. That's, 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 that's what it's going to be. But that's not necessarily true anymore. And I've even talked to many of the REITs and many people I know out in the industry, and most of them are going 48 months on Lisa. So that, that does change the financial look at the risk level or the appetite to get that 10-year value. You know, if you're in a five, seven-year plan, developing something at a four-year lease-up to economic does probably 85% probably doesn't make sense. So you really have to look at the market and you have to look at this, you know, understand your market very, very well before you decide you're going to develop in there. Um, and the same thing, you know, with, with the acquisition. However, if you're already setting in a market in a 12 to 15 square foot per capita, then it gets into who can compete better. I, hey, I'll, I'll go all day competing with people. I have no problem with that. You know, developing and lease up is, is, is a heavy slog. But if I'm going in with my operations and things, we'll talk, I think, a little bit about creating value. But, you know, those kind of things, you know, to me, um, are really, really important as to whether you develop or whether you buy in. To be honest with you, right now, a lot of people are, are, are buying in um, because of the lease-up difficulty. So you're seeing a lot of, uh, and, uh, you know, things also like conversions because of, of that. Okay, and, and we're going to uh, get to that. We're going to get to that in a second. So actually, that's the next the next lead-in. So how do you, as a management company, create value for owners? Yes, you know this is the this is the critical piece of of, of what management would do for people. I mean, uh, you know, I do advise on you know whether you make the buy and feasibilities, you know, all that kind of stuff. But when you get with revenue road, it's after it's done, you're turning the key. It's yours now. How how are you going to build value in that property and but, you know, the biggest thing, my first focus always is, and I, I just, from the food business, it was always about food. And the hotel business is about one room lost is one room lost. I can never get it back. So my obsession is always, what do we do? It's rent. We rent spaces and collect money. If we don't do that well, so I focus, I, that's why I look for upside first. I, I look to see in-place rents. You know, am, am, am I comparing them to street rates? And am I raising people's rents? Because it's a month to month. That's the beauty of storage. Well, you got to do it and you got to be able to 
from a service standpoint, take care of the customers. They don't leave. Explain why you're raising things. Hey, keep the place maintained so they don't feel like they're getting a lower value. You know, and create new values for people. And I'll talk about it in a second. But when you create, when you look at the person's value proposition, if they're not, if they see they're paying more and they're getting less or get, getting the same, the, the option, and then someone down the street is smarter than you and brings something else to the table. Well, then they're going to they're going to go. Um, but, but so I, I focus on those in-place rents. Are we bringing them to market? And then the incoming rents, am I, am I, am I monitoring that nonstop? Am I making sure that I've got, you know, rates that are competitive, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing what I need to do to build the revenue for the owner. Got it. And then on the marketing um, end, on the marketing end, kind of how do you approach that? Yeah, on the marketing into that side is, you know, you have to be competitive. Like I said, primary, secondary, tertiary, depending on if you're competing against the REITs, it's a heavier spend. There's just no doubt about it. It's harder to compete for the AdWords and the, those kind of things and things like <clears throat> our, our aggregator we use, like spare foot things. We, we have to, we, we, you know, we have to spend a little more. Secondary and tertiary markets, you some, in tertiary markets, sometimes your marketing budget is very low um, because, you know, even sometimes you don't even need a sophisticated website to make money there. So yeah, that, that just depends on the market. But I, I would say too that the other thing is ancillary income. But that's, that's where I... We, we really we really hit the ball apart with what we do, but the, the key is getting everyone to understand and owners understand this. But a dollar of profit is not a dollar. I, I tell my people that from top of the company to the bottom, a dollar is not a dollar on a cap rate. It's seventeen bucks. So every you know Al Copeland and Popeyes. Well, wait, wait. Get, so the people who are listening don't understand that. Explain why that's the case. Sure. Here's why this is the case. Penny profit. If, if, if a dollar flows through to NOI or to bottom line profit, okay, to cash flow, if you are owning a property and you have revenue on an income producing real estate, that dollar that you flow through each one is not worth $1 because on a cap rate, when you would, when you would exit, say it exits on a six cap rate, that $1 was worth 17. And that's the key is building NOI dollar by dollar, capturing the penny profit. So then when you're analyzing the property for its value, well, that's what the, the banks and every, and you know, you analyze the real estate on its value of its NOI on a cap rate. Well, that $1 is not a dollar 17. So when we're down to selling a lot to somebody, when I'm down to selling boxes to people, when we're trying to get sure we get insurance income through tenant insurance, those activities are not, they're, they're, they're very, very, very important. And I can't emphasize enough that, you know, things like truck commissions, things like insurance, collecting your late fees and lien fees, um, selling move supplies, security services, tech services you bring to the customers, you create value for the owner. All of that is pennies. And the pennies on a cap rate are not pennies. That's right. And so that's, and, and if, and if the employees understand it all the way down the bottom, then, yep. then we're doing the best job. And let me explain to people the math behind that. So for those of you who are not, who are not familiar with commercial real estate, um, Darren keeps talking about something called an NOI. NOI is net operating income. That is the money after the, the revenue comes in, so your rents and all the ancillary services Darren just talked about, all that money comes in, then you pay your bills, okay? But before you pay your mortgage, there's a, there's a, there's a dollar amount. That dollar amount is called the net operating income. That net operating income is how you value different types of commercial properties across um, just, you know, apartments have net operating income, self-storage has net operating income, uh, uh, office buildings have net operating income. 
So that's that, that dollar amount that's there. What you then do is you divide that dollar amount by the prevailing cap rate. The cap rate is just the amount of money you expect to make on a property if you bought it all cash. So if I bought a property for a million dollars and it pays me $100,000 in cash after everything is everything is all said and done and there's no there's no mortgage, it's a 10% cap rate, okay? So Darren just talked about $1. If the cap rate is 6.5%, 6.5, 1 by 6.5%. So just move the decimal point and that equals 17. That is how you value a property. That is what the property could be sold for um, if it was, you know, if that dollar is all that was there. And so that that algebraic math equation is why people get so wealthy in commercial real estate because a dollar is not a dollar. A dollar is multiplied by what people are willing to pay for that dollar in the marketplace. Think Absolutely. of it from the stock standpoint of a market multiple. Or think about if you're buying a company, what amount of revenue, X amount times per revenue you're willing to pay. It's the same thing in real estate. It's just net operating income divided by the cap rate determines the value. So every dollar that falls to the bottom line for an owner is multiplied by that prevailing cap, well, divided by that prevailing cap rate. So that's why $1 is really worth 17 on a 6.5% cap rate. If you're confused, send me an email. Um, I have lots of uh, webinars that you can watch about commercial real estate and how to value commercial real estate. But understand that a dollar of profit equals way more than a dollar of value when it's all said and done. Um, so that was a little aside for commercial real estate lesson from there. <laughs> and so let's talk about the trends you're seeing um, in the development kind of tr traditional build outs versus conversion models. Um, what that is, because you know I wasn't familiar with conversion models until you all taught me about it. And so kind of talk to me about kind of those new opportunities that are coming in um, mm -hmm. in terms of what has not necessarily been storage before, but what is being turned into storage. Absolutely. Uh, you know, what's interesting, Eric, is that, and this is continually evolving. Uh, actually, my team and I just went to a three-story office building with a, with a, with, which is vacant now. It has been vacant for about two years um, because it's just the exodus from office has been, because of pandemic and things of that nature, has been tough. And so um, we went analyze with the owner and check things out. And it looks like it is a viable storage opportunity uh, to be converted. Um, and that would, you know, maybe we would strip it out, hollow it out. And, and, you know, the great thing about it is, is we can get the, the actual storage infrastructure product in there for probably around uh, nine to $10 a square foot, even with the cost of steel now. Um, and then you, you, you do the demo, you basically, fix the air conditioning if you need to. Um, and then you might have some floor loads on the multi-levels that, because, you know, floor loads on storage are a little higher than they are in other ones. But on the development side, you honestly develop it for significantly less than, you know, say if you were even develop, uh, converting for 50 bucks a square foot, but to build that same building in today's time with the cost of steel and everything would be more like $100 a square foot or $90 a square foot. So a substantial conversion is a great financial opportunity. And so a lot of, you know, we, we've done con uh, conversions with developers on, I'll give you an example. We've converted a JC Penney's in Texas City, um, what the developer did, and we advised on it. And this thing is um, leased up uh, to 85% in a year and a half. Crazy. But, so, you know. So, so, so much faster than that. So much faster than that 48 months you were talking about for new build. Yeah. Because think about it. 
all the marketing that went into that mall was all about housing and <laughs> median income and everything I listed off earlier, right? was already done. Mm-hmm. You just got to plug it in the real estate. So there's so many opportunities there out there right now. And, and those are in neighborhoods and things. So we're seeing what people call dead malls, you know, things like that. We, we have one that was put into a Macy's in Fort Worth. Um, and that one is leasing up very, very well. Um, uh, an old brewery in Galveston, Texas, six story brewery was hollowed out historic landmark in Galveston and turned itself storage is leasing up the same way that the other property tech city is. Um, so, you know, you've got in many cases, lower development costs. And uh, right now there's just these buildings that are there, right? I mean, they're already constructed. You don't have to build walls, don't have to build a foundation. And you're, if you purchase it right, there's a lot of opportunities to convert it for a very um, lucrative uh, business opportunity. Perfect. So we're seeing a lot of, a big move to that right now. Okay. And then talk a little bit about the technology you're seeing coming in. You talked about the contactless um, mm. move. So what, kind of walk us through some of the technology that's coming in to make that 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 process easier for tenants to be a tenant in a, in a storage facility. Absolutely. Um it was invaluable during the pandemic. I'm just telling you, it was very valuable. And, and now it's becoming even, it's becoming, uh, you've got to have it. But, um, you know, things like um, in the entry to the property, the whole access control issue has really evolved since, you know, the pandemic, you know, making sure that people can access their stuff without having to even touch buttons. They can walk in with their cell phone, literally, and just as they walk in, it knows they're there. The technology does. And they walk in the building, the door opens. It's kind of like get smart or something. You just start walking around and stuff opens, your, your door opens, your unit. I mean, it just it's, you just pull it up and you're, you go and you put it back down, walk away. It locks it for you. Um, so there's all these kind of things out there now that have just made it much more, um, you know, safe, but also what the customer wants for their, you know, lack of hassle, right? Not to remember a code. They can just send a, um, send a, a text to their family member and the family member can go in, all those kind of things. Um, and, you know, too, um, things like for data, you know, zone tracking and things becoming very popular data points. And we've got, we can create a ton of data, understanding what's happening at the property through these, these uh, technologies. Um, but, you know, things like uh, we have a thing like called Storage Defender, which is basically um, inside the unit. If anybody were to come in a unit, it alerts the customer on their cell phone that someone somehow is inside their space. Human heat entered their space. People really like the ability to have self-control, self-monitored um, awareness of the of, of their things. Um, also, things like kiosk technology—they're getting easier and streamlined to be used. Um, uh, property management software is 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 growing, all going to the cloud, becoming more nimble, and linking to more and more of these technologies. Um, and then, like we use revenue management software. Um, that stuff is critical right now because it's getting so competitive as more and more people are on the internet um, and using the net as a marketing device from various ways, learning to keeping competitive with pricing and being very nimble on pricing. I mean, daily understanding that you're moving with the market. Um, a quick question about that is, are there dynamic pricing engines like there are in the hotel industry in self-storage? Yes, there are now. Okay. And they've really been around probably just the last couple of years. They've been around the REITs have had it longer because they were able to build the models out. But for the rest of us out here, um, there are, you know, we use one called Veritech, but it's these guys were in the, in the uh, auto, the, the car rental business and the airline business. Mm-hmm. And they brought their algorithms and technology over 
And let me tell you, man, it, it's, it's, it's something, it's weird. You start trusting the algorithms to do things for you, but they, they're, they're pretty powerful. And also two things like call centers, you know, call centers now have been, I use one that we self-manage. We have our own call center for our company and we manage it internally. So we control the message and the marketing on it and all that kind of stuff. So um, yeah, technology is becoming very, very critical for self-storage and evolving every day. And, and it's a very exciting time. Got it. And so to wrap up, what question didn't I ask you that the audience should be aware of about the industry? Uh, you know, I'll just throw, throw this in there. If you, you know, to me, I've been in this a long time. I've been in this industry since 2001. <laughs> so I'm getting kind of old in it, but I try to stay fresh. And, and the one thing I can tell you that all the years that I've been here, um, that I feel like the self-storage, uh, you know, concept that the, the actual uh, segment of the industry is just been strong. I mean, the biggest, most important thing you have to remember, and I think you said it in the very beginning is your, your relationship or who you've got managing your property is just critical. It, you know, they've got to be the, the people that make sure that when you go into a downturn in a, in a national economy, that you are on it from the moment that one second, because you can't go in down, you go in down, it's hard to come up. If you go in on top of your game, it's just a little small flux. It's not something that where you're, you're, you're destroyed in it. Listen, I went through the 2009, 2008, 10, the, you know, trust me, I, I, I did, I did that whole thing, saving properties from, from the, the brink of death from, uh, from the, uh, the, 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 uh, all the different loans and issues we had back then. And so um, I, I really, I really uh, think that's just something that, I think it's important for everybody to understand that self-storage has, and, and, and on the inside, it, the way, how we weathered it is to stay at the top of our game. So, Got it. And, and so, and so let me, I was going to wrap up, but now you made me think about something. So for mom and pop owners out there, how did, th- how do you think they fared? I, I think a lot of them, if they had a loan coming due or do have a loan coming due right now, might be in a, in a spot if they didn't have those things in place during the pandemic time. And that, that was a concern of mine in the industry was, you know, I've, and we've seen it. I, I take them over all the time. I just took one over last week, a 400 unit property that did not, has not managed um, the rates pre pandemic. And then they were, they're having a hard time coming up. And so we're helping them right now. And, and, and the property is going to survive and, and actually flourish. But, this is what I see. Got it. So you yeah. think there's some, do you think there are going to be some opportunities coming up? Like, so I'm sorry to go longer. Um, the industry itself, how fragmented is it, you know, mom and pop owners versus institutional owners or, or kind of larger kind of owners? How do, how is the, how is the market currently constructed? Yeah, I think the last number I saw was probably 70% fragmented. I mean, uh, it may have gone to 65 now with people, but you know, when I say fragmented, just there's a lot of individual or one or two, three property ownership groups, or or ma- that manage self manage, um, and um, some of them do okay. Uh, the technology is helping, but I think a lot of things. I mean, I laid out. It's not just one of the things. It's it's like so many things, right? And um, and so I think that's where someone who's been doing it a long time has a has a group is 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 it can quick more quickly realize the result. Than someone who's got to go learn everything first and then come back and try to get there, you're already too late. 
So I think that's one of the benefits of what of, of having a third-party management company. Got it. And, and do you see some opportunities coming up on the horizon? Oh, absolutely. I, I do. Um, I, I see. I mean, right now, I mean, we're, we're just, we're, we're, we're exploding. That's all I can tell you. We're growing every day. And, um, and a lot of it is exactly those scenarios where we're, we're helping people. They want to get to that next level and, um, and, and be able to exit with a, with a strong, um, um, a strong uh, return. Got and it. so we do. Perfect. And so we'll wrap up there. I know we went long today, but I think this is very good information, um, especially for people who don't understand the industry. You gave literally a masterclass on the industry and what people need to be thinking about as if they want to get into this industry, who they should be partnering with, what a what the management team needs to kind of look like in terms of what their capabilities should be on the management end. And so I thank you um, for that um, from that standpoint. And so um, I want to thank Darren Kelly from Right Moves storage from being here today to talk to us uh, about self-storage as an industry. Um, you can find uh, on the businessroad.com, you can find our other podcast uh, informations. And please, if you like this podcast, please go to iTunes or your podcast platform of choice and rate and review. Uh, thanks again, Darren. Thank you, Eric. Bye, everybody. The Physician's Road is brought to you by Vernonville Asset Management. Vernonville Asset Management was created to help physicians build wealth and create income beyond Wall Street. Through our exclusive private investments, doctors can begin to free themselves from the burdensome regulations in healthcare by creating income streams independent of medicine. Go to IncomeBeyondWallStreet.com to get your free report, Wall Street's Biggest Lie. Again, go to IncomeBeyondWallStreet.com to get Wall Street's Biggest Lie and free yourself today. Thank you for listening to The Physician's Road, where you create your life in medicine on your own terms. Please go to thephysiciansroad.com and sign up for your free guides and resources.